0: Bye. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi-Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 10, There's Male All Up In This Gaze, or The Hunger by Whitley Streber. Content warnings for this episode include discussions of rape and sexual assault, sexual violence in general, violence in general, lots of talk of sex and discussion of a movie starring a recently
1: deceased person. So what did you think of The Hunger? Because I must admit, this is one of my not only one of my favourite vampire movies ever one of my favourite movies ever.
0: Um there was a lot I enjoyed about both. Um I think I enjoyed the movie a little more than the book, for reasons that it didn't have all the rape and stuff.
1: <laughs> does help?
0: Yeah, it, it does help. Um Plus the gaze was a lot less male, like there were times I actually just was reading the book and I'm like, this was written by a dude.
1: Oh, yeah. And I will say, in favour of movie, the movie can be very male gazy at times. and it's Stylistically, it's more kind of conscious camp than anything else. Yep. And the book, it's definitely. Uh, yeah, there are some moments of real. Oh, yeah. Men. It's, it's very 80s as well. Well, the, the movie is just 80s. The vampire movie. But the
0: book. And there's, there's nothing thing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I was watching them, looking at the make and going, yeah, 80s. The Hunger was um, a novel by Whitley Strieber, and the movie was made in 1983, so they definitely have that whole early 80s feel. It was a couple of years before um, Labyrinth, so it's a bit of a shock if you grew up on Labyrinth David Bowie and not, you know, The Hunger David Bowie.
1: Yeah, this film was directed by Tony Scott, who's of course known as the late brother of Ridley Scott. I believe this was his first movie. And it's definitely a case of style over since, yep. but the style is just fabulously 80s and melodramatic and kind of early new romantic goth crossover. That one sex scene. <laughs> yeah. This was her, looking
0: up his Wikipedia page. This is Tony Scott's second film. His third would be Top Gun.
1: Once again, a natural progression. And then in 1995, he did Crimson Tide. Stuff. Well, Top Gun is only marginally less gay than The Hunger. So we should tell the listeners at home what The Hunger is actually about.
0: Yep. It's about Miriam and John Blaylock, a vampire couple who do what all vampire couples do, live rich, kill people, have fun.
1: They're at it constantly.
0: Yep. One of the earliest sequence scenes is a flashback to their first meeting, And it's basically her taking control of the sexual encounter, encouraging him to perform oral sex on her, and then they switch it around in the sixty-nine, and that's it. He's in love. In fairness, it's Catherine Deneuve, yeah. But um, well, in the book, in the movie, yes, but this is this is the book. They don't actually show the sequence in the movie.
1: No, but you do get the sort of flashback to. I think it's a stable scene. Yeah, it's in a stable, rather than him being this
0: this rich guy who's like, hey, I thought the deal was, you know, you come to my bedroom, we do it, I give you the money, you leave. And he was originally quite peeved that his father's whore, quote, did not, you know, do as she was supposed to and come to him in his room, and that he had to go out and find her.
1: Like we said, written by a dude. <laughs> The movie, thankfully, kind of cuts out most of this and just leaves it to very stylish flashbacks.
0: Yeah. There's, there's a lot of flashbacks in this book. Um, Miriam is a vampire who originates in ancient Egypt. Um, her mother, Lamia, was also a vampire. And if you know your vampire or religious um, mythology, Lamia is a very famous um, vampire figure, or vampire-like figure, or just even a very common name for vampires, whether it's a specific vampire or a, or a race of vampires. Um, unfortunately, this means we do have what we've dubbed, what I've dubbed, the White Egyptian Blues scenario, in that you know she's described as pale and blonde and fair, but she originates in ancient Egypt.
1: Not uncommon even today. Looking at you, you know every Egyptian movie made recently, or well, that new one that's coming out where Gerard Butler is the lead. <laughs> <laughs> Paisley's no, finest. We digress. Gerard Butler's not in this vampire movie. No, but he is in a vampire movie. (laughs) Which we are going to do an episode on one day, I swear. Oh, it's so bad, and yet I've seen it so many times. Not like Van Helsing (laughs) I was going to say,
0: if you're not familiar with um, Kelly and Van Helsing, it's like, what is it? It's like one of your go-to
1: comfort movies or something? Yes. Yeah. Is The Hunger up there as well? It's just Hugh Jackman's lustrous hair. (laughs) He's worth it. (laughs) So you're in The Hunger... John and Miriam are spending centuries together, looking good, doing it a lot, and feeding on basically everyone that they can invite to their absolutely gorgeous house. Their house is amazing. They're rich vampires, of course. It's amazing. It's a rule. Yeah, their their property portfolio is sublime. So, about two hundred years after turning John, he starts to have trouble sleeping, and he begins to age rapidly in a few days, and by age we mean he basically, those 200 years catch up on him, and he's pissed off. Basically, it's like drinking from the wrong Holy Grail. (laughs) Yes, it is that that whole scene in Indiana Jones, basically. And it's It's actually pretty upsetting to watch.
0: Especially if you're watching it like I was for the first time post the recent um, death of David Bowie. We were originally um, going to be doing Nosferatu for this episode, but about 12 hours after, well, even less than that actually, because it was just 12 hours for Kaylee because she sort of, you know, went to sleep. A few hours after we finished recording, the announcement came that David Bowie had died, and we were like, let's do The Hunger. It's a difficult movie to watch, especially if you're watching it for the first time, because you see David Bowie age to an age that he never actually got in real life. Once he gets into the ridiculous age, it's it's not so bad but once you see him either in a way he might have looked towards the end or what he might have looked like a few years from now that was hard to watch because this is a, a movie about where David Bowie is promised forever and ever and was denied it and we think of our celebrities as being forever and ever but it was only his music I made myself sad oh
1: I'm sad no thanks thanks yeah, that's one of those ones I'll never get over, honestly. And it's a really tough scene to watch in general. We'll get to a full examination of it later and everything it stands for. So, in this moment, as he's aging, he goes to visit a doctor who specialises in tackling insomnia. Uh, that's, and what that's she the believes movie-
0: only thing, um, he's just sort of wandering around, killing people, drinking their blood to regain temporary youth. Whereas it's Miriam Blaylock uh, who's reading uh, Dr. Sarah Roberts' book um, Sleep and Longevity and goes to see her hoping to find the cure
1: for John. Yeah, I'm mostly going by the film because it is one of my favourite films. Yep. So you have Dr. Sarah played by Susan Sarandon. She specialises in studying the effects of rapid ageing in monkeys and hoping that she can reverse that. So there are lots of pretty intense scenes involved. You know, experiments on animals. The wrong holy grailing of monkeys. Basically, yes. He John goes to visit Sarah. Sarah assumes he's just some crackpot and kind of brushes him off. And a few hours later, after he's aged decades in that time, Sarah sees him and realises, actually, there's something going on here. In the, in the book, it's very different. Say, uh, Miriam shows up
0: as a patient to the um, clinic um she says she she claims she has night terrors which was the um dr roberts's specialty before she went on to gerontology so if, and as she's the only specialist in night terrors in the clinic she has to come in and analyze them and they start doing tests which sort of reveal that miriam isn't quite human she goes to sleep and she basically is dead her body is at a state where she should be rapidly aging but she doesn't seem to be aging at all And her blood comes through systems as not being human. It's something better than human. It's more disease-resistant. It's just generally superhuman. And they start wondering what she is, thinking she's... You know, they they consider she's a mutant. She's not. It becomes clear she's not. And they start thinking that she's some sort of similar species to human, but not. Which that something that has evolved alongside humans looking like them, but not being them. And meanwhile, this is all part of Miriam's plans to get Dr. Sarah Roberts. At first to try and save John, and then she's like, well, she's got a
1: new replacement goldfish. Yeah, she really does view these companions she has as being, like, household pets. I think that's actually the line
0: in the book. Sounds quite... Something sounds about right, or at least the attitude definitely is right. She keeps them... And uh, spoilers, she. When I say she keeps them, she keeps them. She yes. promises them forever and ever, and she is right in that respect. She's lying when she says he'll be, they'll be young forever, but she does mean they'll be alive forever and ever. And you thought Rochester's wife had a bad up in the attic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she wasn't holy gra- wrong, holy grailing it up in a coffin alongside the coffins of all of her other companions, he, she kind of neglected to tell him about? Yeah. She's so selfless, isn't she? Oh, I can't see, stand to you suffer, so I'm going to put you in a box and just leave <laughs> you there. Yeah, he's like, kill me. She's like, no. I'll just put you in a box. So, with John out of the way, Miriam basically instantly moves on to Sarah. Yep. And they almost instantly get it on in the book. I mean, in the film. In the movie, it's it's weird, the case
0: of, you know, vampire-driven insta-love sort of thing. Um, in the book, she basically mind contr- starts mind-controlling Sarah by sexually assaulting her in her sleep. Once
1: again, um, written by Um I'm,
0: I'm, I'm not kidding. She breaks into Sarah's apartment while she's in bed with her partner and sort of sexually assaults her in her sleep. This is not the first instance of um, someone being sexually assaulted in their sleep either. In the very beginning, really really early on in the the book, when John first starts failing to sleep, when he wakes up before um, Miriam does, um, he rapes her in her sleep. You know, it's one of those, it's written as, she's just so beautiful and attractive, and, you know, he can't resist himself, and I'm just going... (coughs) And afterwards she's like, oh, you didn't wake me up, sort of thing. And I'm like... (coughs) If I weren't trying to read this whole thing I prob I would probably would have stopped reading about then.
1: Which would have been a reasonable way to go, to be honest. Yeah. But
0: yeah. There are a lot of things
1: not very good about the book. <laughs> and that is a big one. I think the film greatly benefits from just stripping away most of the stuff.
0: Yeah, It doesn't also have it's it's overwrought in its own way. The book is very
1: um how would you describe it? Over overwrought as well? It's overwrought in a way, but it, it, we don't get the joy of it defending into conscious camp. Yeah, it's not... Whereas co- the film straddles that line just enough. I mean, the lesbian sex scene is... The the accompanying music to the lesbian sex scene is the flower duet from Lakme. Yeah. It's that kind of unsettle. And yes,
0: there's so flowing is the curtains and everything. The- yeah, it's... The, the Hunger is probably the most overtly sexual text we've been looking at I mean there's you know there's been sex and a few other ones we've looked at I'm thinking of um, Only Lovers Left Alive but the hunger of the book lacks the sensuality of every other text well every other text except for you know um, what we do in the shadows that's <laughs> not really a, a sensual vampire text because if you think about Dracula and Carmilla and everything the there's a hu- even even um, tons de Vampire and even Twilight has its own set, you know, that vampiric sensuality to different degrees. It's not overtly, not as overtly sexual as it is overtly sensual, which is, you know, a trend with vampire films or yeah, books movies. Yeah, here the
1: sex is prized more than anything else. Yeah,
0: if you think, I mean, comparing it to Interview with a Vampire, which came out about five years before this book, hugely sensual book. It's over, overwritten, much like. The hunger is, but that works. It's because it's got that sensuality it's, it's, that carries it on from previous vampire traditions. The hunger is a dude writing about sex, much th- and it happens with sort of the, the passion and the frequency no, not even the passion of um, a British stereotype making tea. You know, afternoon, sex. Um, <laughs> been to the doctor, sex. Woken up, sex. Concerned about rapidly aging. Sex, had tea, sex. It's just whenever he can put in sex, he does, and it's not even really well written sex. You know, I kept finding like, okay, we could nominate this, we could nominate this, we could nominate this. Even the stuff that is consensual, there's no feeling or sensuality behind it. There's a lot of focus on the female form and its actions, yeah. but nothing about the enjoyment of the female characters.
1: Yeah, it's very It's written by a performative, dude But it's really oddly performative Which I think is because it is Written by a guy, not to say that a guy couldn't Write that kind of realistic sex Between two women, but that's not his Concern It's Like, did you read
0: that article? I think a lot
1: of people would have read this article,
0: where they were discussing The male gaze in fiction and the example they used Was um, the attention to I think it was Danny's nipples In um, Game of Thrones The book? Yeah yeah you know she's walking and she feels her nipples and it's like what (laughs) it's what a guy thinks a woman feels and focuses on but from a dude perspective it's male gaze there was a lot of talk about physical female parts that a man would focus that a cishet man would focus on but none of the actual pleasure she would receive from that Plus, you know, the the constant sexual assault sort of suggests it wasn't written by a a woman. Not that, you know, women can't write um, sexist or misogynistic type works, but there is definitely a male gaze all up in here sort of thing.
1: And it's interesting the ways that the film goes to combat that. One way it does it is by almost stripping it of dialogue, the film. It's not a dialogue-driven movie. No. It's way more about flowing the curtains. loops, about the clothes, the flowing curtains, the <laughs> flowing, fabulous property.
0: The flowing curtains are bigger character than David Bowie, basically. <laughs> like David Bowie gets, you know, how in in *Labyrinth*, it should go, you know, David Bowie, Jennifer Connelly, the area. And this, it should be like, you know, Catherine, David, Susan Sarandon,
1: curtains. <laughs> Monkeys as well.
0: Yeah, but it's just like curtains. Everything there's a sequence. It's like curtains. The curtains flow. I I thought I was watching in you know, um, Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> it's it's that sort of that it's that sort of thing. Total Eclipse of the Heart,
1: but the vampire movie, which is and it's also put to the flower drag, which just makes it so fabulously overwrought.
0: So clearly, flowing curtains must be a, a vampire thing because Total Eclipse of the Heart originally written as a vampire song. Some other thing, and then t- reads for Tans of vampire.
1: And there's your you think obligatory they would keep passive. their windows open if they were vampires? Well, they're not
0: going to get cold at night.
1: No, we're just going to let sunlight in. Well, these va- actually these, these guys va- aren't affected by sunlight. No, so.
0: no. Which, if you were living in ancient Egypt, would be a you know a good thing to not develop an allergy to sunlight, because I hear they have sunlight down there. Not that we know from Scotland and some parts of New Zealand. <laughs>
1: I heard you had sunlight the other week. Yeah, but it was also cold, so... Yeah. You win some, you me really slim. Yeah. So after Sarah and Miriam do the deed amidst the flowing curtains, <laughs> Miriam bites her arm and exchanges blood with Sarah. And we should point out the emphasis on the exchanging of blood. Because the way that Sarah tries to look at this when she realizes there's something wrong with her, she looks at it logically, like scientist.
0: Yeah, she looks like she thinks she's been bitten by a spider or something. And they start comparing it and then they look at her blood and they're like, ooh. There's a heavy emphasis on science in the book. And I kind of, you know, I have no idea how that science holds up today or even then.
1: We should point out Whitley Strieber is best known for writing a book where he documented being abducted by aliens. (laughs) This was after um, The Hunger, right? Yes. Yeah they made a terrible movie out of it with Christopher Walken. Because of course if it was Christopher Walken. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just like, yeah. Well, at least it wasn't like yeah. Nicolas Cage or something. Because he would totally have done it. So we should also point out as well, Sarah has a, a boyfriend, or a partner, who she has terrible
0: sex with. Not that she seems to think it's terrible, but the in the book it's terrible.
1: He's played by Clifty Young, who played Brad in Shock Treatment so it's <laughs> both generations of Brad and Janet together at last <laughs> that's amazing he was a really good Brad actually I like Shock Treatment but it doesn't end well for Tom doesn't end well for anyone in this movie or book that is true so Tom turns up at Miriam's house looking for Sarah because Sarah has been there to confront her to find out what the hell's wrong with her And Sarah is starving and desperate and trying to fight this urge to feed and she gives in and kills Tom. Because Tom is trying to do the gallant thing of, no I won't leave your side, I want to know what's wrong are you okay? It's like, nah you're gonna die. And then of course he does and Sarah goes back downstairs to join Miriam and you think, oh well those two are set for the next couple hundred years until this goes tits up. And Sarah. Okay, the ending is slightly confusing. (laughs) In the book, Sarah basically
0: refuses to become like John and every other lover before her. She rejects um, Miriam and you know fights away stuff like that. And Miriam's like, "Well, to the attic you go." And so she's got a few hundred years before she. Well, she's got if the pattern holds, she's probably got about maybe a hundred years before she starts decaying. In the box, and then she's got the rest of eternity in the box. Whereas in the movie, apparently vampires can die by falling off things.
1: Well, or maybe she just gave up. What Sarah does
0: is—well, what
1: Sarah does is she goes to kiss Miriam and then basically stabs herself in the throat and forces her mouse or Miriam's kind of to ingest her blood, like transmitting the virus back to her, I think is the reasoning. They kind of hint at it earlier in the film when they're studying the monkeys, but it's never really explained. And the film was kind of slammed for its sloppy ending. Yeah, kind of. So Miriam is sad that she's lost another pet, so she takes it upstairs to put her in her another box, and there's more flowing curtains, (laughs) and all of the decrepit... You know, half-moving corpses of her, the ex- previous lovers, have suddenly risen up and push her over the balcony, and she dies. She hits the ground, screams for about another couple of minutes, and
0: yeah, starts that scene rapidly goes on for aging. Like four minutes. So, yeah, and she starts rapidly aging, much like her previous lovers. No, no
1: explanation given as to why. Yeah,
0: it's almost like she, she didn't really die when she fell all those flats down the.
1: Those, I those assume stories. it's connected to being fed the blood of Sarah. Yeah, that would be my guess. Never really being fed connected. the
0: blood and just because a lot of vampire stories do have the taboo of you don't drink another vampire's blood. Well, we saw that last month. Yeah. Yes, yeah, for various reasons and obviously if there was the taboo here it seems to have the effect of Rapidly causing the aging process because Miriam is the true vampire, and she's just conferred a temporary form of it or a, a weakened form of it onto her partners. She was born a vampire, whereas these are the other made ones.
1: It um, so it's just, like a bastardization. Yeah, of and what then she she, is. And she can't she, really pass it on.
0: Yeah, in the movie, she ends up in her own box and suddenly back to life. Um, Dr. Sarah Roberts is somewhere. And meanwhile, Sarah is just hanging
1: around with these two pretty young people. That ending was added at the behest of the studio. Yeah,
0: Because I think they were
1: for sequels.
0: Yep. Because there are actually two sequels to the um, books, but I will not be reading them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. No. Uh, In the the book, it's a bit different in that um, Miriam is the victor, as we sort of imply by Sarah being put in the box with everyone else, and Miriam just moves on she goes off to find somebody else. She's found herself another pretty young boy. Because um, Miriam explicitly decides to switch things up with every every time she gets a new partner. So she goes from a guy to a girl to a guy to a girl. Which is why... So it's not like Sarah is just her first girl. Um, I think Lo, was Lolia the one before? I believe so. Yeah, they they sort of get a hint of timelines, but she's obviously got more than uh, Jimenez, Lolia, and then John and Sarah. She, she's, she's got more than, you know, the two two coffins in the attic before she um, picked up these two. Yomenes was in um, the end of about 70 something BC. So towards the end of the Roman Republic. And then Lolia was she was Byzantine, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah, so we're sort of, I think we're looking at sort of a half-life on the vampires, aren't we? I think so. Something, well, at least something in that sort of pattern. Because um, John only lasts about 200 years. Lulia, 400 before that sounds about right. Then maybe 800. Although maybe he lasted a bit longer. Who knows? It's not a
1: good pattern to be following.
0: Yeah, basically. And that's basically it. It's a probably a rare, lo- rare example, at least in the book, of the vampire, the true villain, winning... I think we are supposed to, you know, have Miriam as our heroine, sort of type thing as well, but doesn't fly. She's our
1: protagonist, and our hero lo- and our heroes lose. Which, even in vampire fiction, you don't really see that often for a straight up villain to win. I think you could probably make an argument that you're supposed to find Miriam sympathetic on some level, but she does some incredibly monstrous things and doesn't seem to feel. Much in a way of remorse for it. She's sad that she's lost her pets. She's not sad that she's destroyed lives. Um, she was born in ancient, ancient Egypt, and she, if she's been
0: killing one person a week, that's a lot of people. And that's excluding, you know, the the extra one person from whoever her partner was during those times. Then there's just the keeping of the forever immortal but decaying exes, which is icky. It's like stuffing your pets. At least the pets are dead. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah she she's she's a horrible person she She murders, she sexually assaults, um, she's grooming a 13 year old girl to be her next partner. She knows yes. which is one of the most ugh, <sighs> things in the book. She knows that John's time is coming, and so she's already picked out her new replacement. And it seems to me that the um, she will be turning her at age 13. She will age until she's about 25, and then she'll be young forever. But she's very explicitly grooming this child, this 13-year-old girl, to be her new partner, to be her new lover.
1: And she's not even such about it.
0: No. I mean, John totally knows what's going on.
1: And it's strange as well, because especially in the film, the relationship they have with Alice is they're like they're more like mentors or like that cool aunt and uncle yeah the the cool neighbors they come the, over she comes over and plays music with them yeah
0: they're like her music teachers but they're also the cool neighbors that you know she trusts and goes over to and they're cooler than her parents cuz she look at their house
1: yeah she clearly dotes on them
0: yeah she 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 adores Miriam and she really cares for John but there's a war between her and John that she she can't quite get over and it sort of bothers her and I think in part it's John knowing what this girl is going to be what this girl means for him well once he figures it out once he starts aging he definitely knows he may be more okay if they're it into like a threesome or if they were going it's not even like two vampires deciding they were going to have a child together and they decide yes we'll just keep this 13 year old forever no it's explicitly grooming her for when she comes of a certain age so they can engage so that miriam can engage in a romantic and sexual relationship with her
1: which is one of the reasons i can never really fully get on board with miriam being any kind anti-hero i think she's just a straight-up villain yeah i mean she's played very sympathetically by katherine Deneuve. Deneuve plays her as being very haunted by these decisions she's not like that in the book
0: no she's just like eh, new one she In the movie, she's quite upset when Alice is actually da- is actually killed. But she sort of gathers herself up and has to deal with it. Whereas in the book, she is peeved.
1: And then she's just like, oh well,
0: Sarah, hi! Yeah. John is also much more sympathetic in the movie as well. In the book, he is pretty active until the end, just going around gorging himself, trying to find enough food. He's not able to eat enough to contain- sustain his youth. And he's go- basically going on a spree killing, trying to get enough blood and life force and really struggling with it. Whereas in the movie, he's a David Bowie and his fading away is treated much more sympathetically. There's the horror of his last scene with Alice where you're like, no, don't do it, don't do it. He's more your, your anti-villain type role in the movie.
1: He's a really a victim in this. Yep. And it's because what he goes through is so difficult to watch. It's a really good makeup job, actually. Especially for, you Uh, know, 80s. Yeah, you could get a bit touch and go with some of the makeup (laughs) in the 80s, but I think this one's really good.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. The movie definitely tries to make the characters more sympathetic than they are. In the book, they're just... All of them are, like, horrible people. Just different degrees of horrible. But I think that's pretty much it. Horrible people do horrible things. The book.
1: Well, the thing I'd like to start with is as just tie into what we were discussing a second ago is the particular fear of aging that this film runs with which is a common thing in vampire stories we've discussed it in several of our episodes actually Twilight being the notable one. <laughs> oh my god I'm 18 the end of my life now I'm totally decrepit <laughs> You still can't drink in your country Bella you're fine You're gonna get carded for the rest of your life So here, one of the great appeals of vampirism is that eternal youth and beauty. Why would you not want to spend centuries looking like Catherine Deneuve or David Bowie, who are so damn good-looking in this movie? And stylish. Like, the the first scene you see them, they're in some, like, goth new romantic bar watching Bauhaus play, and the song they're singing is "Bella Lugosi's Dead. Yep. And she's wearing the most fabulous hat and sunglasses
0: sunglasses at night a vampire style choice
1: one I heartily support
0: that's the There are only two excuses for wearing sunglasses at night if you have sort of an eye condition that means you know the bright lights of a place like of the traffic or whatever causes problems or you're a vampire. everyone else is just a douche.
1: <laughs> you need to have a certain sense of style, but that's one of the things that's you know quite common in I would say a lot of recent vampire stories in particular with that rom- romantic element the great appeal that makes these characters so alluring particularly if you do it from a heroic or anti hero stance is you're trapped in the quote unquote agony of forever being young and beautiful you know there's not a non-looker amongst the vampire bunch really yeah Which is strange because if you read dracula he's explicitly described as not being That, you know, attractive. He's alluring, but it's not the same thing.
0: He gets better once he actually gets some food in him. You know, (laughs) you're not not you when you're hungry. That's sort of. (laughs) human. (laughs) But the brides are explicitly beautiful, so he's obviously picking pretty people.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: And both Lucy and Mina. Yeah. And Jonathan.
1: True. True. Even Reeves look pretty good. The acting. uh, But but that's part of the the horror of what miriam does she promises people something that i think everyone would say yes to
0: yeah she promises which is something eternal youth and
1: beauty yeah and not only do they not get that but they have to watch it basically disintegrate before their eyes and then they're stuck they don't even get the sweet release of death no they just have to rot away basically become even less than human Miriam is kind, you know, gives this life to them, and it comes with this condition that she never fills them in on. The male vampire, I don't think, tends to come with as strong a paternalistic metaphor, or at least as frequently.
0: The youth and beauty thing is definitely attached to the female vampire. It's um, so a woman gets offered the eternal youth and beauty. Um, the man is often offered, you know, the the strength and the power and the masculinity it's the you know the masculine ideals versus the feminine ideals a woman is not allowed to you know get old and age and show her show the signs of time whereas the the thing that would attract a male vampire generally or at least we are shown in media and that our culture would probably combine with is that strength and masculinity that power that alpha male that we see in paranormal romance all the time
1: you we've know? talked before about you know vampires are either a metaphor for a penis or vagina <laughs> um, so Dracula is he could be. You know, he's tall and foreboding and exudes power and dominance so it's very Yeah. here The Hunger I think you'd make a case for it being that more I don't want to <laughs> say more vaginal She's vagina, didn't kind have of it. is yes yes <laughs> it's, this is the monstrous feminine of Barbara Creed which we are being very reductive in terms of gender and genitalia here which is very second wavy in its kind of feminist criticism we should point out a lot of this this theory of people like barbara creed's monstrous feminine does come from that era yeah and obviously the story is very second wave in that aspect written by a
0: man non-heteronormative female sexuality is quite common in vampire stories we also see you know the the male Homosexuality or bisexuality um, appearing in vampire texts, but the female lesbianism and bisexuality is stronger. Um, Anything not on the gender binary is far less common. I mean, if anyone does have any recommendations for, you know, I don't know if there is a trans vampire film or anything like that, or any just any short stories or anything about any vampires. Not on the gender binary, please recommend them to us. We would love to see it. It's just mostly yes, texts, especially the big, well promoted texts, have people fitting on the gender binary, but focusing on fluid sexuality. You know, it's part of the well, I know in older texts it would be shown as part of how these vampires are not fitting in with the norm, how they are deviant. Look at their deviant sexualities you know it's part but of the horror bit, a it's story. A, a young woman is preying on other young women in a sexual manner look at how monstrous
1: she is because she's defying our rules and it's interesting that this comes in america in the 80s and this is as the aids epidemic is rising but the the monstrous figure of the AIDS movement as categorized by you know the evangelical right and the conservative movement who wouldn't even mention the word aids usually is a cisgender gay man it, was never really women or lesbian focused, but it's still presented as kind of an act of deviance here. Not so much on Susan Sarandon's part; she just seems really willing to go with it.
0: Yeah, she's she's a logical scientist. She's making a logical, interesting choice,
1: um, and it's actually really logically handled. They're having a drink together, and Susan Sarandon just says, "Are you making a pass at me?" Just yeah,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> and they just go. At she's
0: the- like, "Okay." You know, it's not something she'd consider, but now that she has the opportunity, why not? Yeah. The ads thing is actually quite interesting because I've been watching a lot of um, Matt Baums work on YouTube and he's been talking... Well, the ones I've been looking at lately is about 80s sitcoms and things like that and the appearance of gay characters and also designing women in the um, AIDS epidemic and how, especially at this time, there was... You'd find with people... who were diagnosed with um, HIV or AIDS, they would have a rapid decline between the diagnosis and death.
1: It was very quick because there was... A lot of the very iconic images of the AIDS movement are of patients at the end of their life when they've lost a lot of weight, when they're covered in sores. There was a very famous picture that ended up becoming a United Colors of Benetton advert, weirdly enough, of a man on his deathbed from AIDS. Yeah, and yeah, they used have to sell clothes. It was really strange. Ugh.
0: Now, I'm not sure if, you know, the timing works out, but it is a really interesting image to think about. You know, the 80s idea of, you know, we'll go out and do everything. That we are young, we are a mortal feeling of just being young. And then that rapid decline is just an interesting...
1: Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure that was... Yeah, I don't
0: think it was the insp- inspiration or anything like that, but the timing is interesting.
1: Um, It was, even if it's a coincidence, it does. It's a
0: powerful image. Exactly that that's that sort of decay. You know, you're young, you're young, you're handsome or beautiful, you're in love, everything's perfect, and then it's all over.
1: That's really depressing.
0: Yeah, it's it is interesting now that I think about it because they describe the virus, the the Miriam's blood as like a virus or something, sort of taking over and destroying and replacing destroying um sarah's own cells and replacing it with its own i'm not yeah, sure it's if the...
1: viewed in very scientific terms there's no mysticism here yeah even i don't she know... is in many ways quite a mystical character
0: i don't think the book really thought about it that way but i think the movie may have had it had something like this in mind i'm not sure it's definitely interesting to view knowing what else was going on in the time period uh what was your next what was
1: next on your list? Really just what kind of vampire they are. They can go out in the daytime, they don't have fangs. Yeah, well remember Dracula could go out in the daytime. But Dracula had fangs. Yeah. These guys have little knives they carry around their neck.
0: Yeah, and in the book they use scalpels.
1: Once again it ties into that, making it very medical, very scientific.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. There's very there's nothing about, you know, the origin of vampires, just that, you know, there were a bunch of them. They had their own culture and everything within the culture they were living. They were, you know, much rarer species, and now um, Miriam is the last one, just because they died. Apparently, Miriam's father died in the Hindenburg. He helped all it's the very people. specific. Yeah, he mentions he helped all the other people, and then he, but he didn't get off in time. And you can see in the video, in the in the footage, um, this guy on fire. So fire can kill them. That's tr- sticking with tradition. But then fire kills a lot of things. They seem to just be a species that evolved alongside humans that looks like humans preys on them, rather than any truly mystical background, which is why they can be studied scientifically. And given more time, they probably could have figured out a lot more about Miriam, but, well, the genius is gone. Who knows, Sarah might very well have um, found a cure for John and the others had she not been meddled with
1: and it's interesting as well as the traditional imagery of a vampire is this bite in the neck here I believe it's a wound on Miriam's wrist that she makes to feed to Sarah Yeah. and then when Sarah wants to end it all she stabs herself in the neck really the jugular
0: yeah they do go for the neck because it's you know it's accessible lots of blood blah 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 it's a quick death but also John at least has to chloroform his victims
1: yeah, they're not really natural predators in that aspect. When, you know, In these stories you often see how the the transformation process gives them the tools that they need to be predators. It makes them stronger, it makes them faster, it makes them smarter. Vampirism here doesn't do any of that. It really just freezes them in time.
0: Yeah, Miriam has extra abilities. She does seem to have some form of a glamour, you know, the ability to mentally control people. John is just
1: weaker. But that's part of the being born into it versus being turned. Exactly. Well, there's no like vampire society that really see in the film. It's just the two of them. Well, yeah. Well, Miriam is explicitly the last of her
0: kind. Her father may have been the la- uh, last one before but it, but the book does go into her siblings and how they were killed um, by humans who found out about them. Her mother died in childbirth. Things like that. So they they're not... Immortal in the sense that they are unkillable. Um, they just hit, you know, twenty-five or so and stop aging. So they're not as, you know, as mystical or as powerful as other vampires you see in fiction. Um, Miriam has the uh, the touch, which is really sort of ill-defined. It's some sort of glamour-like thing that just seems to give her new things when the plot demands it. But they don't use the vampire word.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: There's just, you know, my kind, or, I, you know, I am the last of my kind. Now, the the sequel book, the first book, is called The Last Vampire, so. But within the text of The Hunger itself, vampire is not really used. It's not used. No one even goes, she's a vampire, when they look at her, realising, you know, how old she is or something. Which... I guess, you know, in that world, they didn't seem to have the pop-cultural context and lexicon that we would now. People in, it, in modern movies who don't have some immortal blood-sucking creature and don't go vampire? They're kind of weird. Because we've had enough pop culture to really give us a word for that. Same with, you know, modern zombie films where they don't even entertain the idea of the word zombie. Earlier ones when the, the you know, the word wasn't still being used, maybe, but They had vampires before the nineteen eighties. They didn't invent the vampire in the nineteen
1: (laughs) eighties. They
0: invented me. Although I will
1: say the eighties did give us very interesting versions of Vampires. Every generation
0: or just even this gap over a few years gives us different vampires. I mean, you know, seventies we had interview with the vampire, eighties we have well, the hunger early 90s we had well very early 90s we had um well Christopher Pike and LJ Smith LJ and the silver civil- and then um Curtis Faust, and that's in the young adult section um LJ Smith is interesting because she actually uses the term lamia for the born vampires and there's also the made vampires who are a different group again so I thought it's quite interesting and then of course you've got
1: like 1993 1993- 1993 is um Anita Blake isn't it? Yeah, the beginning of urban fantasy really kicks in about 93 94. You also have in the 90s, you have films like Abel Ferrara's The Addiction, which really drives home the metaphor of vampirism being akin to being addicted to drugs. Uh, and then you've got just also Bram Stoker's Dracula. The resurgence with the Coppola film, of course. Yeah. And then,
0: of course, 2000s, you have um, the continuation of the. 90s paranormal romance and urban fantasy and then 2005 you have
1: the twilight every generation gets the vampire they deserve <laughs> the 2000s just had a lot of vampires these things come in cycles
0: we keep seeing it yeah because um, um, I mean this year that um, twilight came
1: out the historian came out and remember when that book came out that book was a huge deal yeah, that book sold for a lot of money. For a while, you could not escape that book. I have opinions on that book. It's definitely we, worth reading. We need to do an episode on that book. It's definitely worth reading.
0: <laughs> and
1: then 2010s, we've
0: got actually 2005 was a looking at the Wikipedia was a big year for vampires. Vampire kisses started. Uh, Peeps, the historian, Twilight, oh Vampire Night Dracula vs King Arthur. <laughs>
1: yeah. Dracula vs. King Arthur apparently also came out in that year. There was a great NPR episode years ago, I'm talking about 2009, 2010, and they talked about the idea that every era's vampire reflects the anxieties of the time. So us sad millennials with our Snapchats and our YouTubes and our narcissism. And our PewDiePies and our whatevers. (laughs) Parents are like, PewDiePie? So we we get, you know, Twilight, we get... Vampire Diaries, we get this very specific focus on youth, eternal youth. And that that kind of introspective romance, obsessive romance. You look at something like Dracula, and of course at the time it's... Those goddamn foreigners. The Industrial Revolution, it's that fear of disease and the xenophobia coming in from the continent. So
0: you're saying we are due another Dracula adaptation for all the fear of the the xenophobia at the moment?
1: Yes, actually. Given What we need is a Dracula movie that's actually about Britain's vote on whether or not to stay in the European Union. (laughs) I was actually thinking about Donald
0: Trump being attacked by a vampire, but... I'll take that too. I'm just imagining, you know, a Mexican vampire or something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, I think tying back to what we said, it's the 80s. It's the yuppie time. It's the rise of AIDS. It's rise of drug culture. There's, you know, a lot going on at this time. The prominence of the LGBTQ movement which coincides with the rise of AIDS. And I think a lot of that also unintentionally ties into The Hunger. I don't think Whitley Straber really was that focused on this stuff when he was writing all the the male gaze. (laughs) But in terms of the stylistic choices Tony Scott made, because this film is very of its time, it offers a very specific view into what was going on, whether it was intended or not, because it was such it was so saturated in the landscape at the time. And I think, honestly, I think the muddled ending is part of that. Because because of all the anxieties of the time, I don't think the studio were very comfortable with an ending that is basically the villain winning. You, c- you couldn't have the lesbian win. Or the bisexual lady win, rather. That's true. So you have the other element of, hey, we've got to punish the queer lady guys. Yep. If you've never seen the documentary, The Celluloid Closet, they go into this quite a bit. They actually talk about the hunger in it. And they talk about the sex scene. And originally it was supposed to be more... That Sarah was drunk or glamoured into it, and Susan Sarandon was like, "Nope, enthusiastic consent."
0: Yeah, it's definitely. Got the The movie itself has a different attitude. If Sarah had been glamoured or drugged into it, it definitely would fit into the 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 the, the vampire as the horror, as the abuser, as the the rapist sort of metaphor, which would have counted a lot of what they were going for with the movie. In the book, her not being entirely willing fits perfectly with Miriam's character because we've seen her sexually assault and not really care about consent at all. But obviously the movie is a bit more about consent, or at least isn't as ignorant of consent as the book is. So that'd be right, the book has no consent at all.
1: That's really depressing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, you've seen John rape Miriam while she sleeps. Like, she is dead. Pretty much dead. She cannot consent. There's the sexual assault of Dr. Sarah to basically put her under the mind control. There's a lot of sex sequences between Sarah and her partner and her boyfriend. And at least a couple of them, she's not too keen on them. You know, she's she's not saying no, but she isn't saying yes sort of thing and she's not really into it. It's that sort of attitude that sort of made us think, you know, it's very it's very malgazy. It's not about the woman's pleasure or consent willingness. And it's not used as a it some of it's at least is not used as a horror element. It's just a, you know, insert sex scene here type of thing, even if it doesn't seem to make sense for the character or the part of the story or whatever. So, you know, I'm going to be shocking at another sex scene look at me putting in a sex scene did you agree? do you have anything to expand on that?
1: No, I think you're totally right and I think that if the movie must be mostly style over substance it at least it at least improves upon the sexual element and I think a lot of that is just because Susan Sarandon put her foot down
0: yep well done Susan Sarandon damn it Janet you did well still a little boobies in the movie Yes, I'm a mature adult. I said the word boobies. But it's very artfully shot boobies. Yeah. it's There's, there's bits where, you, where it's, the camera's tightly focused on a woman's chest, but you can't see anything. You can just hear the pounding of her heart, and then it moves to her neck. So it's very clearly not... <laughs>
1: boobs. There's a wee bit
0: of that. Yeah. But it's not anywhere like in the book, which is very focused on them as an object. It very uneven in the um description of the female form versus the male form.
1: I would say the curtains are as artfully shot as the tits, to be honest. There are definitely more curtains. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Just flowing in debris. As I said, it's the the beginning of total eclipse of the heart. <laughs> Just curtains everywhere. And yet Tans had so few flowing curtains. It had the capes instead, see? well controlled capes there is one element I'd really like to talk about and that is the metaphor of sleep in Mm. the story because the moment that John starts to rapidly decline it's because the first symptom is he cannot sleep and Sarah's team study is tied to how lack of sleep affects us how it Leads us to deteriorate, and her fear is maybe this this process can be reversed. Yeah, um, there's, there's but first, before they do that, they have to seriously fuck with monkeys. They're very specific about the type of sleep
0: that they that vampires go through. You know, they basically go into a st- state of near death. It's almost a hibernation type thing, except it's not just a hibernation type thing. It's not stopping the the aging for those hours. It's also a rejuvenation. So it's not just you know doubling the lifespan as such. It's also re- extending it beyond the whole idea of no, you don't age while you sleep. And once he's once um J- John's body stops going through the sleep, it can't rejuvenate itself, and thus it sort of falls apart to the state he should be had he not been you know rendered semi-functionally immortal. And then there's the idea of can humans harness this own idea of sleep. That's Sleep with a capital S, by the way. There's a lot of, you know, italics and capitalization in the book for actions that are the same as humans, but just the different element to it. You know, Sleep with a capital S, Touch, in italics, things like that.
1: But the poor monkeys. Yeah, that's pretty distressing to watch, actually. Yeah. And I've heard the theory that that scene uh, epitomizes Sarah as the... The Mad Scientist. I don't know if it entirely does. I think it hints at a particular kind of prizing of logic over empathy that may be quite alluring to Miriam. But her, her research isn't out of a place of madness. It's out of ambition. It's out of pure logic yeah she's um she's doing it her own career but you know if something great comes out of it that's also wonderful
0: yeah one of her subplots that she's dealing with um the board and getting funding for her thing and the men talking about her project and things like that again i don't know if it's intentional on Streba's um part the um, the role of the female scientist being blockaded by male scientists and their board members and things like that because i'm not quite sure if he actually understood that or if it was just an accident but there's definitely the idea of this um, forward striding female scientist and the men who don't quite get her work or tell her to you know, she's got to step back or you know, couch it in these terms when she's describing it, stuff like that like Tom, her partner is like that you know, he he gets it but you need to do it like this to sort of get the men to approve. Also doesn't he try to help try to heal her with sex at one point at the end? That seems to be the implication. of uh, in the, in the, There's a scene in the book, yeah, she's like... And I'm just like, no, 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 dude, write it, no. That's generally the reading of this book, it's like, no, dude, write her. no. We do need to speak briefly on the, um, the whitewashing of history, quite literally, with
1: Miriam. Yeah, which, as we mentioned, is depressingly common. But because, you know, Miriam is discussed as being... So incredibly beautiful and alluring, and potentially the most beautiful woman who ever lived. Catherine Deneuve is beautiful, but she's not Egyptian.
0: No, but even the book she's described as fair and blonde and pale. I'm
1: just wondering if the guy
0: knows where Egypt is. (laughs) Most people don't seem to know where Egypt is. But it's interesting because the story would be completely different if Miriam was a woman of colour. There'd be a lot of. Power
1: dynamics alone.
0: Yeah. All her flashbacks where she's you know able to pass through european societies without comment would have been a bit different if she were a woman of color you know she there would have been other women of color in europe obviously but she she moves through the higher classes again not that there aren't women and men of color in the upper classes in historical europe no matter what the historical novels have told you
1: <laughs> i was just but, talking about this on the other podcast that i do cuz we were talking about the free musketeers and the people who pull the well, it wouldn't have been historically accurate to have a man of color be a musketeer. It's like it's like do you know who I'm sorry, wrote do you know anything it? about Alexandre Dumas,
0: yeah, he was the one I was thinking of. But I couldn't pronounce his name, so thanks,
1: Dumas,
0: yeah, see this is why I'm learning French in part for our <laughs> discussion, and just for the one day we end up going to the vampire Museum, I know
1: how to ask for directions. that is our great plan, yeah, I think we would be remiss if we did mention the giant honking metaphor that this movie opens with, which is the band Bauhaus singing the song Bella Lugosi's Dead. Yep. Undead, undead, undead.
0: Which some of you... It's it's a very common vampire song. It's probably one of the first gothic rock songs that really took off, if not the first. Um, it shows up in a lot of, you know, TV shows, especially vampire-themed. Uh, Churches today. One of their... Uh, churches did a cover of it for um vampire academy i i enjoy the cover because i like churches and it's just a re- I, I like the contrast between the lyrics and their the electronic
1: bounce of the song See, i just love the original it's yeah i so love the original stripped, stripped down and
0: i love the original but for that modern age thing that Churches cover is great
1: i mean i love any song that contains the word the <laughs> Such a fabulously new romantic world. And how many songs re- reference Bella Lugosi anyway? Not enough. But everything that says at the beginning, which is, you know, there are no black capes here, there are no bats, not a whole lot of virgins as far as we know. <laughs> <laughs> Would you wrap it up with just what we thought and then
0: Yeah, um so as I mentioned, if I had not been actually a- aiming to finish the book for the podcast, I would probably have put it aside the first time there was a rape scene, just because I'm like, nope, this is supposed to be the guy with one of the guys we're following. I don't need this. I'm gonna go read Star Wars or something. Anything, <laughs> anything. I'm not saying you know, um, vampires. No, I'm not. Gonna... That's not gonna work as a phrase. It was more the handling of it than the. Um, than the fact that it existed for me. I know some people would definitely have thrown it aside just because they don't... Nope, no rape, no rape scenes at all, thank you very much. Um, but it was more the handling of it for me, coupled with the rest of the male gaze that made me think, yeah, this is not going to get any better from a female perspective. And I was right. Also, I, the writing just didn't work for me. It was, you know, overall, but it wasn't enjoyably so, like Interview with the Vampire. It was just like I think the
1: film embraces that. Yeah,
0: the melodrama. Yeah, more. I much enjoy the film over the book. Um, probably wasn't in the right headspace for it because I just keep seeing David Bowie and get sad. So maybe if I you know came back to it again, I'd enjoy it a bit more. But like you know when I how I watched Um Labyrinth* the night they announced that he died, and I'm like I'm just sad. And then I danced along to *Baddie Dance* and then I got sad again. it's it's definitely a a mood piece or a, you know, a right sort of headspace piece for me because of the 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 windows and the curtains and the music and everything like that I will watch the movie again not not read the book again well we know you love the movie
1: (laughs) The, the book doesn't really interest me for all the reasons you said, I like the film because it knows exactly what kind of film it is the ending sucks but that's not the fault of the film that was a studio mandate I just love that it embraces the luridness but it's never it's never in the pursuit of male pleasure it's very much about this dominant woman I not as especially keen on them playing her as an antihero I think she is a full on villain but you know that's probably more open to interpretation or whatever just thinking about
0: the ending of the film and how in the film Miriam is actually defeated. So, excluding the the tacked-on ending with the um, addition of the revived Dr. Sarah, um, what do you think about... Would you have preferred if the movie had stayed true to the book and have Miriam as the Conqueror still, or is Miriam defeated what you want?
1: I think it would have been a really gutsy move, because you just see... Even today, we really don't get to see women antiheroes or women villains be front and centre in a story in a way that fully explores that badness. They're usually like, punished or killed as quickly as possible so that the men can go off and brood.
0: Yeah, the, the, the tacked-on ending with um, Dr. Sarah in the flashy apartment, with um, Miriam's uh, piano and John's cello, by the way, it probably would have, and the two young, the attractive young couple in her apartment, that was definitely an, an ending that would have made a lot more sense with Miriam. Had Miriam, you know, not... Is
1: that the official verb?
0: Why not? I th- It would have been a much gutsier move to have Miriam as the the victorious vampire, you know, going off to just do the whole thing
1: again, having learned nothing. That also would have opened up the sequel, so I don't understand why they changed it.
0: You had to punish Miriam. You couldn't have her... punish the queer lady. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. But then they hint that Sarah's still kind of into the ladies with the, you know, the lady kiss and all that at the end. So it's... I guess it's, you know, watch the corrupted lesbian, well, newly corrupted bisexual woman now. You know, she's passed on the curse and look who's become a monster now. So yeah. But it looks really cool. It looks really cool. Yeah, so that's my, my... my suggestion skip the book watch the movie just be prepared for you know feeling uncomfortable at David Bowie getting old beyond what he
1: actually lived to have a chaser of Labyrinth afterwards to cheer yourself up
0: just always watch Labyrinth
1: we recommend that for all occasions
0: and that's us for this month yes thank you everyone who's listening to us we still don't know quite why but thanks (laughs) Uh, next month we will be doing Nosferatu which is easily available as it's um, out of copyright. Both I It's think, on YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's on Archive.org. It's pretty much anywhere. Uh, we'll be also watching Shadow of the Vampire, which is the movie about the making of Nosferatu, but with added actual vampires.
1: Does we may be- also watch the... Remake? Werner Herzog, Klaus Kinski, Nosferatu. Why not? More Nosferatu, the better. Pretty much. So... But if you can't watch all of them, just watch the original nineteen twenty silent film, because it is the easiest to get.
0: It is the easiest to get, plus it is probably the movie that has the most impact on vampire and horror film
1: and literature. Plus it's free, so you've got no excuse. And it totally wasn't breaking any copyright. <laughs> it's the Fifty Shades of Grey of its time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that's us that's us uh, thank you very much once again for listening if you want to l- listen to any more of our episodes we are on iTunes or you can visit us on our website com. we'll also hopefully be posting a bit more regularly on the blogging side of things you can check out our previous episode which was uh, Interview with a Vampire Shut Up Louie as we called it
1: we're always up for you sending us suggestions too.
0: Yep, we love suggestions, um, both just in a personal suggestion and also just for what we can watch and analyse. If you have any further comments, you can send them to us at Twitter. We are at BloodsuckingFem or on email at Fangmail at com. That's Fangmail with a G because we are terrible. Uh, we are also personally on Twitter, so you can find us probably linked through our other Twitter accounts. We'll see you next month with Nosferatu. This has been Bloodsucking Feminists episode 10. Yes, we're into the double digits now. It's really exciting. There's Mail All Up in the skies, or The Hunger by Whitley Streamer and the movie by Tony Scott. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you. to some black capes Back on the rack Bella Lugos is dead The bats have left the bell tower The victims have been bled That velvet lines The black box Bella Lugos is dead